Welcome to Rock Fellowship. We're glad you could join us. If you're new here or you missed last week, last week we started a brand new series called Idols, called Idols, where we're exploring a biblical view of money. And last week we talked about the connection between the title of the series, Idols, and the topic of the series, which as you can tell by the dollar sign S, um, is money. And we looked at a brief overview of how the Bible talks about money and found that for the most part, the way the Bible speaks about money in Scripture, it's a fairly nuanced topic. It's not something the Bible shies away from discussing. It's mentioned so many times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament by Jesus, the Mosaic Law, and the Apostles. But when you look at it, the Bible's view of money isn't as simple as more money good, less money bad, or vice versa. It's much more nuanced. And like many idols found in the Bible... At its core, money is just a thing, a tool, an asset that has dangers, that can lead to evil, but isn't necessarily evil in and of itself. And in the same way that a metal sculpture of a cow can either be an exhibit at an art museum or your personal god, the connection between money and idolatry is found not necessarily in money in and of itself, but in our relationship with money. And with that in mind, this series, despite what it was marketed as a few weeks ago, isn't actually a series about money. It's a series about idols, which means the series is actually about our hearts. Now, this week we're going to talk a little bit more about the giving and generosity aspect of our money. Last week was a lot more hypothetical. It was a lot more, I don't want to like jump the gun too much, and it was much more of an introductory sermon. But this week, we're going to talk a little bit more explicitly about the Bible and and its call to give and to be generous in our lives. But before we actually get started talking about giving anyone's money away, um, because it's kind of a sensitive topic, and depending on where you are and how new you are to this church or to Adventism or to God in general, I want to open up with a few disclaimers and address potentially a few hang-ups that anyone might have. Because I imagine that there are some people in here that are listening, either online or in person, um, and you're like, okay, I know where this is going. I've seen the YouTube preacher compilations where a pastor goes up, do a series about money, about giving, and how you need to be generous and give more to the church. And next week, they show up with new Rolex, and they show up on preachers and sneakers, kind of decked out with the off-white Jordans, and all of a sudden, they can't fly commercial anymore. They have to fly private because they need to prep their sermons closer to God. Okay, I've heard this before. I know where this is going. You can keep this comments to yourself. And if that's you, and maybe you're new to church or you're new to God, and you're like, listen, you can keep this to yourself. I want to start with a few disclaimers and a few potential hang-ups that you may have just so that if at the end of this sermon, if at the end of this series, you decide, you know what? No, giving to church, that's not for me. I don't want you to come to that conclusion for things that may not be true. And if that's how you feel on any level, whether you're new to church or you've been at church for a while, I want to get a few things clear about our church and the Adventist church and how money functions within our church system because I think it's important to know. In a sentence... This is maybe the most important thing to know if you're hesitant about giving because, like, where is this money going? There is no correlation between a pastor's salary, that includes myself, Pastor Chris, and Pastor Park on the Korean side. There is no correlation between a pastor's salary and the amount of giving collected by a church. In other words, we don't get paid more if you give more. We don't really get paid less if you give less. I kind of, within reason, generally speaking, Right? There are churches that operate that way, and there are definitely churches that operate where it's kind of a percentage of total church giving, but the Adventist church has safeguards against that, and that's not the case for our church. 
So there is really no incentive for us to like get these numbers up so that I can buy a new outfit or drive a new car. None of that is true for our church. There is no correlation between how much you give and how much money myself, Pastor Chris, or Pastor Park makes. To create further transparency, I figured this would be a good time as any to do a quick finance report of our church. Where has our church been given these days? Where is it at? And unfortunately, because I'm not as techy as I would have liked to have been, um, there is a finance report graph that I asked Paul to make, and he made it for me, and I cannot get it on the screen. So I will paint the best word picture of this graph as I possibly can, and trust me, it'll be beautiful. Feel free to close your eyes and imagine these numbers and the corresponding lines that are attached to them. So imagine there's a blue line and a green line up here. Um, year to date, so at this, point in this, at this point in the year, through the month of October, here are some of our giving numbers. As a church, we have given $300,731 in tithe, which goes to the local conference, which is about $55,000 more than we gave through October last year, which is a huge show. Feel free to round of applause. Thank you so much for your generosity, what you guys have given to God. So tithe is the amount, if you're also new to church and like, I'm tithe offering rock fund, tithe is the amount uh, that we collect that goes straight to the local Oregon conference and then dispersed out throughout the general conference, NED, and stuff like that. So... Our church has given $300,000, a little over $300,000 in tithe, which is $55,000 more than we gave this time last year. For Rock Fund, which is our operating budget, these are the, this is the money that pays for my salary, our mortgage, our youth, children's, all of our different ministries involved in this church, we've given $161,858 this year, which is about $13,000 more than we've given through October of last year. So again, across the board, much more money has been given. Thank you so much for your generosity and the value that you find in church. And that's the last kind of bucket we have is our building fund, which is a collection of the pledges that were made previous to our building renovation. Largely goes to paying down the mortgage that we've taken out. If you notice, everything except for this room and the room on the other side of that wall is completely new. This building fund goes to paying off the loan we made. Uh, we took to pay that off. And so we've received $68,625 last year, um, and this year we've received 62000 so about 6000 less, but this fund is, is a little bit, it's not as linear as some of the other giving because it's a collection of pledges. Some people pay up their pledges early, and so year to year it's not as significant um, of a correlation. But overall, simple numbers, if, if you didn't have a bunch of numbers pop out in your mind, as a church, you guys have given $55,000 more in tithe relative to last year and $13,000 more in rock, fin, rock fund giving. There's a few reasons for me sharing this information. And the first is, to make it clear, we as a church, this church is very, very, very generous and very, very giving as it is. I don't want to make the mistake of, oh, like the, the creation of this series, the inspiration behind creating this series wasn't myself and Pastor Chris sitting in the office like, you know, like, you know, we got to get these numbers up, like people aren't giving enough. That really wasn't at all the inspiration behind the series. Actually, to be completely honest, I don't know why God put this on my heart because it really wasn't from a sense of like, we just have a bunch of Ebenezer Scrooges in this church that aren't giving, not at all. The numbers obviously speak for themselves. And I also want to reiterate that, especially for myself being the person that is preaching at least this part of the message, I am very much a living, breathing product of God's, like a made-in-rock product of Rock's generosity. From the house that I live in, the car that I drive, um, actually everything I'm wearing right now was gifted to me by someone in this church. 
from the sweater, from this, these pants, these shoes, this laptop that I'm preaching off, everything pretty much except for like my socks, underwear, my glasses, at least today, has been gifted to me by someone in the church. So I don't want to make this mistake of like, I, we came up with this series to berate the church, like how dare you not give more, not at all, that is not the case. The house that I live in, the car that I drive, the person that I am dating, all a product <laughs> of this church generosity. Thank you so much to this church. You guys have changed my life in more ways than one. But on top of that, again, when I asked Paul for this finance report, I didn't know what the numbers were going to be. I just asked him, hey, can we get the numbers through the month of October relative to last year? And I, I'm, I'm kind of glad that our numbers are up year to day relative to last year because it leads me to the second reason why this finance report is important. Because you may be thinking, okay, if you're being strategic about this, shouldn't you have received that finance report, saw that the numbers were up, and maybe you decide, let's not share this? Because it can seem like you're decentivizing the give. Generally speaking, when you hear a series or a sermon about giving, it's the numbers are down, but we're really close to what they were last year. Rah, rah, come on, guys, let's do it. Let's catch up to meet our goals. And sure, we've had those sermons or those messages in the past, and maybe there's some truth there to, to whether that's effective or not, and maybe I shouldn't be sharing this finance report. But the reason I'm actually kind of glad this finance report is the way that it is, and the reason I'm glad that this is coming from a place of I, we as the pastoral staff need you guys to know that we understand how generous and giving this church has already been, is because it's important to note that the amount of money that you have generously given is not an insignificant amount of money. It's just over $500,000 in total giving, and that is a very, very significant amount of money. But the focus of this series is not in what that money does for others. And make no mistake, the money you have given and you are giving is making a difference in our church. For, from Rock Fund alone, the fact that I'm able to be at Rock and do ministry here, you may or may not know this, we've shared this a few times in the announcements, but my salary comes entirely from the Rock Fund. So not from Tide, but strictly from our in-house budget, meaning the fact that I'm able to do full-time ministry at Rock is a direct product of your generosity. The fact that we have a youth budget, a children's ministry budget, the fact that we have a, a relatively new building and we've been able to do remodels, these are all direct correlations and direct results of you guys being generous. So the money you have given to this church is being used to bless others and to change and affect people's lives for the better. It has, and most of you already know this. But the question this series is asking is, is the money you are giving away changing, blessing, and affecting you? And if you were here last week, we ended the message last week with, with just one question. And the question that I asked you guys to answer is a question that is a very deeply private question. And I hope you guys had a chance to ask yourselves this question, whether you or if you're married with your spouse or whoever it is that your money affects. And the question was, how much would you have to give for it to change your life? How much would you have to give before your giving started to affect and make you change your lifestyle? And the reason I wanted us to ask this question as a church is because it really gets to the core of what biblical giving is all about. And as we saw in the story of the, the poor widow's offering, Jesus, at least in this observation, when he observes a poor widow just giving two small coins, where in the background people are dumping mountains and piles of coins, the reason Jesus makes a certain observation and commentary of the poor widow's offering seems to be because he is much more concerned in with what the giving does to the giver than on what the given money does after the fact. 
Because as far as we know, this poor widow's offering wasn't able to do much for others. We broke it down as 1 64th of a day's wage. Rough, not super accurate calculation, let's say $2. In the grand scheme of ministry, $2 doesn't go that far, yet Jesus says she has given more than anyone else. This week, we're going to take a closer look at what, where our idea of giving to God comes from in the modern church um, through scripture and why maybe, depending on who you are, your idea of giving to church may not be the complete and full picture of what God wants for you when it comes to you giving your money away. If you're going to that, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity um, to be here with such a generous and blessed church. Father, we thank you that you're a God that blesses us to this extent, Lord. And as we enter into your word, Father, I ask that both as it was in the preparation of this message and now in the delivery of this message, Father, may it be you solely that is speaking, Lord. May I be nothing more than an instrument and a tool that is powered by you, Father. And for anyone in this room listening or online, Father, I ask that especially for a topic like this, Father, you give us a humble heart, a soft heart, Father. Open our ears to you, Lord. May we be open to the changing and molding of the Holy Spirit during this time, Lord. May we humble ourselves and worship to you. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So if you grew up in church, um, a word you've probably heard quite often is the word tithe, uh, which is a lot of times used interchangeably with the word offering. Tithes and offering kind of used side by side. But if you didn't grow up in church or in the Adventist and you're newer to church and you've wondered what, like, what is these strange words that people keep using, tithes, offerings, and whatnot, um, tithe specifically refers to giving God 10% of your income. And there's a biblical foundation for this. But when you talk about tithe, specifically because the word tithe in and of itself means to give a tenth of. So tithe specifically refers to giving a tenth of what you've earned giving it back to God. An offering is generally a much broader term referring to any other additional givings that are given to God. And today, um, the word tithe has kind of become the cornerstone, gold standard of giving in the modern church, at least especially in the Adventist church today. It's the name of the category um, of the Adventist church uses when we talk about sending money to the conference. So if you looked, um, if you've ever opened up the Adventist giving app or we just mentioned on the finance report, tithe has kind of become like the word that is used. But it's important to know that tithe specifically refers to a certain aspect of giving, which is the 10% of giving to God. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard a sermon or two on the topic of tithes and offerings. But today, I want to do a quick just exploration of where does this concept really come from? Where do we get this word? What are the origins of this practice? And there are several references to tithing in Scripture. And the first kind of 10% giving away actually takes place in Genesis, where Abraham is rescuing his nephew uh, from, he's like a captive in battle. After he rescues uh, his, his nephew Lot, he ends up with a lot of the spoils of war, um, and instead of keeping it for himself, he gives 10% to a mysterious kind of priest that comes up out of nowhere named Melchizedek, and he gives the rest away. But that's not really the formal version of where we get tithe. The formal kind of legal version that we find first really shows in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 to 33, and this is sort of where we get the foundation of giving a tenth of everything to God comes from. I'll just read it to you. One tenth of the produce of the land, where the grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. If you want to buy back the Lord's tenth of the grain or fruit, you must pay its value plus 20%. Count off every tenth animal from your herds and flocks and set them apart for the Lord as holy. You may not pick and choose between good and bad animals. You may not substitute one for another. 
But if you do exchange one animal for another, then both the original animal and its substitute will be considered holy and cannot be brought back. In simple terms, this is the law of Moses saying, everything you have, whether it grew from the ground or it's an animal that's like crawling on all fours, one-tenth of that belongs to God. And it's interesting that he puts the little disclaimer of every tenth, and some translations say every tenth cattle or animal that falls under your staff as you're counting them, every tenth one belongs to God. And he basically adds no cheating. You can't like switch it out for the sickly ones and just, just give the weird and gross ones to God. One-tenth of all that you have belongs to God. No cheating includes fruits as well as animals. And there's a few clauses in there if you want to buy, buy things back, but that's for, for a different issue. And so this idea of like in the law of Moses, in Israelite society, becomes foundational that you need to know that one-tenth of everything you own belongs to God. And later, in the book of Numbers, it's revealed kind of what that money is used for. Actually, it wasn't necessarily money. For the most part, um, wealth wasn't measured in those days in currency as much as it was in livestock and, and grains and produce. In Numbers 18, it's revealed that God gives all of the tithes and offerings that it receives to the Levites, the Levites and the priests. And this was their way of livelihood. And a lot of times, it's kind of interesting reading through it. A lot of times, it's like, Basically, you give meat to God and offer, offer it, and then God says, here, you guys can eat this meat. And it's a lot of like, it wasn't necessarily cash money in those days. And then on top of that, the Levites who received this offering from God were also then expected to tithe 10% of that. So it was a very integral part of Israelite culture. And in a lot of ways, it, it served the practical purpose in that time at least of being the means of, of livelihood for the Levites. Because if you know the story of Israel, when they finally get to the promised land, one of the first things they do is Joshua, he carves up all these different territories and land is given to each tribe, but the Levites don't get any of that. And instead, the kind of substitute for that is that all the tithes and offerings go to the Levites to support them. So this idea of tithe and a very practical and functional purpose um, in the Old Testament. And one of the core values that tithing had in the Old Testament was that it supported the priests and Levites who were also then expected to tithe what they had received. And it's also important to note that in Mosaic law, so in the law of Moses, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the tithe was not a volitional offering, meaning it wasn't like, if you feel like it, go ahead and give 10% to God. It, was, it wasn't a request. It was literally the law of the land, that 10% off the top belonged to God, and the Israelites simply were repaying what already belonged to God. That was the philosophy. But this wasn't the only obligatory tithe. So I think a lot of times when we listen to like, oh, yeah, tithe comes from the Old Testament. Moses talked about tithing. It's important. But actually, if you look further into, and which, you know, very few people do, all the different feasts and tavern and all the stuff that people have to give money towards, you find that there was actually more than one just tithe. So a lot of times people refer to this as the Levitical tithe, meaning this 10% goes to support the Levites and the priests. But if you go further, there was also like a sort of festival tithe where the product uh, the product of this tithe would be consumed during annual festivals. So it's almost like a, I don't want to say like a party fund, but sort of like this money, this produce, this stuff is specifically set aside for the festivals. And then on top of that, a third tithe, another tithe was taken once every three years to take care of orphans and widows and the poor. So if you actually kind of rudimentary do the math of what a faithful Israelite living under Mosaic law would give, the total amount of required not requested obligatory tithe was about 20 to 23 percent of what a faithful Israelite living under Mosaic law was required to give, not to mention any other added offerings that may be given on top of that. 
I know what you're thinking. I don't like the sermon. I don't like where this sermon is going. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's ease it up here. But to clarify, this is just what it looked like. If you're an Israelite living under faithful Mosaic law and you're observing, taking place in all the feasts and festivals, the third tithe that takes place once every three months or once every three years, according to like all the other tithes, in addition to the Levitical tithe, this is what it looked like. And to, again, clarify, this was mandatory giving, not that different from a tax. Because to be honest, at this point, Israel is, is a theocracy. So it's not like there's a, like a legal, this is God's law, you are God's people, this is God's country. This was quite literally the law of the land. So really, it's, it's not that different from just a simple state or government tax. And it wasn't necessarily an expression of thanksgiving or praise, although at its core, it, that is kind of what it was supposed to be. Um, it was just giving to God what was already his and setting it aside as holy. And this was generally the rule of thumb when it came to, to giving according to the Mosaic law. Very kind of steadfast, there's a specific rule, specific percentages, and it wasn't really like, hey, if you feel grateful, if you feel like it was, this belongs to God, roughly 20 to 23% of your total earnings for the year. Really, again, I think the word you were thinking of is, is much more correlated to a tax than an offering. And then, when you get to the New Testament, you find that only a small handful of references, there are only a small handful of references to tithing in particular, again, that percentage giving, um, and there really isn't a specific mandatory percentage that was required of believers, at least that Jesus commands. Jesus himself doesn't talk a whole lot about tithing specifically. He talks about offering and giving and being generous, but as far as that specific 10% tithing, Jesus doesn't mention it very much, and really the only time he does mention it, um, it's a parallel passage in, I believe, Luke and Mark, is um, the only time he really mentions tithing is when he criticizes the hypocrisy of Pharisees and scribes for faithfully and meticulously tithing while forgetting the more important tenets of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So he does mention it, um, but he doesn't really command, so make sure you give that tithe. If anything, it's a much more broad, general command of living generously and loving your neighbor. And again, when you get to the New Testament, you don't find any Explicit commands of specific percentage giving. But what you see is a further emphasis on generous giving and helping those around you. And you see that in the early church, what they practiced a lot more was this radical form of generosity where people would liquidate the vast majority, if not all of their assets, and donate that to the church to support the less fortunate. And so you may be wondering, okay, well, we are closer to the New Testament than the Old Testament, right? So it seems like that 23% thing probably doesn't apply to us. Let's go with whatever the New Testament talks about. And again, when you think about it that way, it can seem a lot more vague, for less of a better word. The pros and cons of, of the Old Testament law was that it was specific. There was no questions about it. It was black and white. It was obligatory. But the downside of that is it really was not that much more than just a simple tax. And you see throughout Scripture, God reprimands his people. I don't desire sacrifices. I desire mercy and justice. You have forgotten what this was all about. In the New Testament, Jesus emphasizes a much more generous giving in general, and he doesn't really tack on this is what you must give in order to be good. He talks about generous giving of the heart, be a cheerful giver, be, have practice radical generosity. But to make the concept a little bit more pointed for today, because if you just leave it at that and you find yourself in the middle of like, okay, well then what what does biblical giving really look like for me? Because, okay, if we're being honest, I don't know if I'm going to do the whole 23% thing. That sounds like a lot. 
But then if I go to the New Testament, it seems just give whatever I feel like giving. I don't know. That seems, depending on who you are, awfully convenient or very, very vague and, and relatively unhelpful. Um, but to make the concept a little bit more pointed for us today, I want to look at an aspect of giving that is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in regards to biblical giving. And the first mention of this specific thing is actually found in the book of Exodus chapter 23 in a series of laws about these three annual festivals that the Israelites were supposed to observe. And the first is Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the other two feasts have to do with the harvest. One is called the Feast of Weeks, or the Festival of the Harvest, and this festival took place um, kind of at the end of the barley harvest, the beginning of the wheat harvest, which means nothing to anyone in here. But if you just want an idea of where in the year, it probably took place around mid-May to mid-June. The other was called the Festival of Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Ingathering. This took place at the end of the harvest year to kind of celebrate the, the finality and the conclusion of the harvest. So one takes place kind of in between a few harvests, and the other one takes place once all the harvests were done, which um, commentators were say that it's at the end of the grape harvest, which... I know it means a lot to a lot of people in here. But the feast I want to focus on today is the Feast of Weeks or the Festival of the Harvest. And this is a festival or a feast that took place kind of in the middle-ish of the harvest season, after the barley harvest and before the wheat harvest. And this was a celebration, and it was an important aspect of this celebration of this festival, was an offering of God, the first fruits of the crops. So it's also referred to as the First Fruits Festival. Here's why that is significant for us today. Here's why the principles of this first fruit offering, I think, can be highly helpful and practical to the modern uh, church today. Because the term first fruits, if I, if I were to say that now, probably doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of us today. None of us are agrarian. None of us make money off of the, the ground. We don't, our primary source of income isn't grapes or wheat or barley. That being said, there's a practical significance of giving God the first fruits of the harvest. So what does that even mean? The significance of, of, of both the offering and the timing of the offering was that the first fruits was the first and best portions of the harvest that were offered to God. And this is the key point. A first fruit harvest was when the harvest was just beginning and before the harvest was completed, you would give God the first and best portions of that harvest before the entire harvest had been taken in, meaning that if you were an Israelite living in a grand society and your main source of income or livelihood was, was you harvesting stuff, how much stuff that you grew can you bring in and sell and feed yourself with, the there was a certain amount of risk involved with this offering. And here's why. In an agrarian society, basically the harvest was not that different from essentially your paycheck. Because determining, depending on how much or how well you harvested would determine what you had to live off of, whether it was food, sustenance, or money to sell the extra of. So the harvest determined your wealth for that year and how much money basically you had made, how well you guys had done. But by giving your first fruits to God, it meant that before you knew what the total harvest income was, before you knew how much money you had to work with, before you knew the final number of the harvest of how much you had made, you had already given the best portion away to God. Think about it in, the, in the terms of before you knew what your final paycheck was, before you knew what your entire net increase for the year was, you had already given away the first and kind of the choice portions 
of the harvest to God. And this had two symbolic significances for the people there. The first is that this required a heart of worship, meaning that the, sim- the symbolism of this was recognizing God I want to give this to you because you are the one that made this harvest possible. I want to recognize you as God, as supreme, as really, I wouldn't have anything to harvest if it wasn't for you. You're the one that brought the rain, made the sunshine, gave us this land. I want to recognize you as God, as creator. Here is the best portion of the harvest that we have. But also, in a lot of ways, this was an act of faith because it was God. I don't know what the final number is yet. I don't know what the total number is going to be. But you know what? I'm going to give the best to you now before I know what I have because I am choosing to trust that you will continue to take care of me. Because practically speaking, practically speaking, it makes more sense to bring all the harvest in, to have a final tally of everything you've made, everything you've earned, and then give God the 10% or whatever he wants. But to do this beforehand consisted of an act of faith because You don't know what's going to happen afterwards. But to give the choice portion of the harvest to God before the harvest was completed inherently had some risk attached to it. Because again, you're giving before you actually know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen after this, but I trust that you do, God. And I trust you're going to take care of me. As a symbol of my trust and as a sign of worship, here's the first fruits. Here's the best portion. Here's the best I have to offer you in this moment. So what does this mean for us today in the United States in 2023, where the reality is none of us have a harvest, none of us are farming, and none of us are looking forward to the seasonal changes. Most of us, uh, I guess except for any of us that may own a business, um, most of us just have a salary where every two weeks or every month you get a paycheck, and over the course of a year, that amount of money largely stays unchanged. There really isn't like that time where you're starting to harvest and bring things in for the most part. Our income, what we get, um, also correlating to what we give, relatively stays the same at any part in the year. And because of the way we earn and give money, I think we've missed out on a very important aspect of godly giving as found in the principle of the first fruits, which is, again, by giving your first fruits to God, it had a symbolic and practical meaning and effect on your life. And the two things that the giving of the first fruits did for us, or did for the people giving, was that one, it really was an act of worship because you were giving to God what you felt like was his. You were acknowledging the blessing that God had already given to you. God, I I believe and I trust and acknowledge that you have given me all these blessings. All the wealth that I have is a result of you. Take it. You are God. I am not. And the second is, God, I'm giving to you before I actually really know what I have, and that's a way for me to act in faith. God, take before I fully know. I'm not going to wait till the end when everything has come in. I can do a total, total tally. I'm giving to you now, fully understanding that this may be the best and biggest portion of, of the entire harvest, and I'm okay with that, God, because that belongs to you. Both a recognition of who God is and the ultimate blesser, and that we give because we continue to trust in God as the one who continues to provide for our needs. I think there's a lot of beauty in that and a lot of significance in the, in the aspect of giving God our first fruits. But I think I speak for more than just one person in this room when I say that for a lot of us that do give regularly, our relationship with giving to God, it's not that different from that Old Testament view of tithing, which is essentially, for some of us and maybe a lot of us, our view of giving is it's, 
It's not really an act of worship. It's not really an act of trust. It's more just like a tithe. It's more just like a tax, a bill that we have to pay. And I think for some of us, we view giving to church, giving to God, if we're being honest, a little bit like how we view taxes, which is what is the lowest legal limit I can give? What is the lowest legal limit I can give and still be good? Like, what is the le- obviously, I don't want to go to jail or get charged or anything, but like, what is the lowest legal limit I can give and still be good? And if we're being honest, again, nobody can answer this question except for you. For some of us, that may be how we view giving to God. Okay, 10%, are we sure? That's it? Not 11, not 12? All right, 10% it is. Let me just, okay, well, I can't give 10. It's any percentage? All right, let me just pick something. And I just give because my mom told me to when I was really young, and, like, now I'm older and I want my kids to give. I give because giving is what you're supposed to do. In a lot of ways, it's not that different from an Israelite being taxed a percentage of their income. And to be honest, for a lot of people, I think part of the reason that is the case is in the history of the Christian church, it has never been easier to give to church than right now. Like when you look at the story of the poor widow's offering and you look at the people in the back, and I think it's easy for us to think like, oh, the the rich people giving the back were terrible people. There's a good chance they weren't. They were just normal church givers that were giving. But to give money of a a certain 10% or a percentage giving of of your income in those days required you to move produce or, or pounds and pounds of coins or animals and it was it was difficult it was a hassle you had to it was an errand you had to run you had to make a day out of it but today's day and age giving is really really easy and if you consider rock your home church and you're going to be here regularly and you regularly give you just open your phone scan a qr code tap 10 buttons one time and the reality is you're set for the rest of the year and to be honest for some of us with the view of, of money and giving as nothing more than an obligation or as a law or as simply just, I'm just being obedient, you know? I don't know that I find value in it or, like, not, but I asked this question in the youth sab school this morning. I was like, hey, like, when have you ever been asked to give? And four hands went up, and all of them said a combination of the same thing is, yeah, I got birthday money once, and my mom said I had to give some of it to church. And I asked, oh, well, how did that make you feel? And pretty much everyone in the room was like, I mean, yeah. Right? I wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't upset. I didn't cry. I didn't take it. But I wasn't like, yay. It was like, all right, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. And for maybe a lot of people in this room, that is how you view tithing and giving to church and giving your offerings is, you know, I don't hate it. Right? I'm not upset at God. But I'm also not like, yes, this is the best. It's just that's what you do. And, and that's not wrong. There's nothing wrong about just simply trying to be obedient um, to God's commands. But I think if if our view of giving is nothing more than just a mindless obligation, right? Especially now where it's so easy to give. You just give and you don't think about it again until the beginning of next year. And maybe next year you get a raise. And so as a faithful giver, you'll change that number once, boop, set it. And then for the rest of the year, you're good. When giving is nothing more than a mindless obligation at best, um, it's something that just doesn't overly bother us. At worst, it can be something that we're overly bitter about later down the road. And again, this series is one that Again, we acknowledge the danger of money and and how it can quickly become an idol in our lives, but also looks to recognize how money, and in particular, giving your money away, can be a tool that changes your heart. But in the same way that paying an electricity bill or making a student loan payment isn't going to change your heart, um, other than making you a little bit upset maybe, it's difficult for our offerings to God to change us when we view it as just a mandatory tax. 
this is just at worst like a church membership or like a God tax fee. Where for some of us, that really is how we view it, which is why last week I asked the question, and I asked you to ask yourselves the question, purely hypothetical and a personal question at that. How much would you have to give for your giving to change your life? How much would you have to give for your giving to change your life? And at its core, this question addresses the topic of what would it look like from a dollar figure standpoint for your money to start to affect and change the way you live your life. And the reason I ask this question and the reason it sort of bridges the gap between last week's uh, passage about the parable of the widow's, uh, the story of the widow's offering to the idea of first fruits today is that at its core, the giving of first fruits had a very tangible and real impact on the giver, right? Giving the best and first portion of your income before knowing what the total income would be, that's a significant offering and potentially a really large sacrifice that you're making. And I wonder if for some of us, respectfully, our attitude towards giving has taken the opposite approach of the first fruits, where what we give to God isn't the initial and best portion of what we have, but for some of us, if we're being honest, it's the leftovers of what we have. We give within the framework of our plans that we have made, and, and one of the biggest impacts of offering um, the first fruits is that the financial planning gets affected, right? If you give your first fruits at the beginning of the harvest, you have to wait, and you make changes to your financial plan or plans to your finances based off what happens after you have already given. But for some of us, you may think, well, yeah, I give at the beginning of my paycheck, but for some of us, if we're being honest, it's I give within what I'm comfortable giving, and I already kind of have a plan, actually, for my finances, and what I give just falls within that framework. And the question I have is, how can our giving be a form of worship and an act of faith in and of itself? Because I think I speak for a lot of us when we say, when I say, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And again, I've shown, we've shown in the finance report that this is a very generous church. And I think the assumption that can be made is that most of us probably give relatively faithfully um, to the church. And you have no problem with that. But maybe for some of us, it's, yeah, I don't have a problem, but I don't know that I necessarily find joy in it either. It's just something that I do because I'm supposed to do it. And, and I get some solace in knowing that, like, look, the church can do all these ministries and the money goes to good things. But I think the question that I think we really should be asking ourselves is, but what has that done for you as a Christian? What has that done for your faith? What has that done for your relationship with Jesus. And the question, maybe a better question to ask yourself in regards to your giving is, would you say that what you give to church, what you give to God, what you give to others, the less fortunate, is what you give, does it require any faith for you to give what you give today? And it's a personal question that only you can ask. But I think it's one worth asking. Does the amount that you give, whether to church, whether to others, whether to charitable organizations, whether to people in need, does it require faith for you to give what you give? And again, I'm not chastising the church. Clearly, we are a very generous church. I am a product of that. But a question that I think we can ask ourselves on a very personal level is, especially for those of us that have been giving since we were kids, since we got that first babysitter's you know, $20 bill, especially for those of us that have always been faithful to giving, Again, because I think it's so frictionless for us to give in the church today, it's worth asking ourselves that question. 
me giving to God, me giving to church, is it actually affecting my faith and my relationship with Jesus? Or even at the least, is it, can I say that this is a form of worship? Am I acknowledging anything about God when I do this? Or, if I'm being honest, is it nothing more than just a tax that is taken? I pay for the lights, I pay my mortgage, I pay for student loans or my kid's college, and then I pay for a tithe. Is it just another utility bill that's tacked onto your life? Because if that's the case, again, there's nothing wrong with sheer and personal obedience, but I would argue we are missing out on a greater reason behind why God asked us to give. Because, again, to look at the story of the poor widow's offering, God wasn't nearly as concerned with what that money was doing, but what that money did to her and what it meant for her to give that money. And so the question I have for us today in the United States of America in 2023, in the modern country, in a Western world, what does the offering you give, what does that affect, and how does that affect your faith? Does it at all? When is the last time you thought, and again, I don't mean to chastise anyone amounts, but again, it's a personal question that I think is worth asking. How has my giving affected my faith? Or to take it a step further, what would it look like for my giving to affect my faith? What would it look like for me to give and then have to have faith afterwards, which I think is the beauty of the first fruits offering? Because you have to have a certain amount of faith to give that initial choice portion of the harvest because God, I don't even know what the total is yet, but I'm going to trust that I don't know what's in the future, but you do. So you take care of me, God, and I'm gonna give this to you. This is my faith, this is my offering to you. But the reality is for some of us, that's not what our offering and giving does. I really, really struggled with, with, with okay, Pastor Chris loves it when we have this sort of like practical application of, of what to do. But to be honest, because of like the sheer personalness of, of money and giving, I'm not gonna end with like, all right, so 23%, everyone, if you can all just make that, if you can all just write that down, that's not what I'm gonna ask. But again, I want to ask with, with, with um, something I saw a preacher speak about money, and as again, for this series, I've been trying to listen to as many resources as possible. And the question that this preacher asked um, his congregation was, how much money, and I also asked this question to the, to the youth last week, how much money is too much money for a Christian to have? How much money is too much money for a Christian to have? Take a second. Again, I, when I ask this to youth, I also give the alternative answer of there's no such thing, right? You can also give that kind of a cop-out answer, but you can say there's no such thing that doesn't exist. But if you have to ask yourself the question, maybe just ask it for you, right? How much money is too much money for a faithful follower of Jesus to have or make for you? And his answer was one that I found was very, I found very apt and also tied into this message of the first fruits. His answer was, precisely the amount that allows you to not have to trust in God. The moment the amount of money that you make or that you've accumulated prevents or discourages you from having to trust in God is the moment money becomes dangerous and or an idol in your life because it replaces the person who is your provider and who should be the object of your faith. And so the question I have for you guys to ask this question, this is obviously going to be much more relevant for those of us that are making and or managing money and finances for a home. But what does it look like for money, for the money that you give to become both a form of worship and an act of faith? What does it look like for the money you give to be an acknowledgement 
and surrender of who God is and how God has blessed you, and also for the money that you give to be an avenue and an exercise in this is how I'm going to trust in God, my Savior, the one who will never fail in me. Next week, we're going to talk about a different aspect of giving, because I realize that as we ask these questions, that they're, they're maybe deeply personal and kind of effective for some of us. And maybe there's some people in the audience that for the last two weeks have been like, dude, I, I, I could not possibly give any more. Like, you are really asking a lot of me. And if you're in that situation and you feel like, you know, like, this, this is, I really am stretching right now, stretched in right now. I'm in a moment of my life where, like, I really can't give anymore. Pastor Chris is going to uh, share with us kind of an alternative way that we can live out the same principles in our lives. If maybe at this time and place, giving more is really not in the cards for you. And I don't want to say that it's like a cop-out sermon. Maybe there's some people that are like, oh, yes, well, I'll make my decision after next week then. Um, it's not necessarily that. But again, um, we're going to transition to that next week. But again, for this week, I really want us as a church to ask ourselves that difficult question if you weren't here last week and you never asked the first question uh, of last week of what would it look like for giving to change your life, at the very least, what would it look like for what you give to be an expression of your faith in God, that God will be the one to take care of you? Because if we're being honest, for many of us, money is the reason we don't have to trust in God. We spend our whole lives, we teach our, our children, to, and we've been taught ourselves that you need to have enough money so that you can take care of yourself, to create these hedges and, and, and pitfalls and these kind of like barriers around us so that if push comes to shove, if something happens, I can take care of myself and I know I will be fine because of my financial planning, because of my savviness, because of the number that I see in my brokerage account or my checkings account. But the question that God asked for us is, what would it look like for you to place your trust not in that, your future not in that, the future of your children not in that, but in me. And the question for us today is, am I in that boat? Have I allowed money to be my safety net? Have I allowed my finances to be what I place my trust in? And am I comfortable with that replacing my trust in God? It's a difficult question that I hope we ask ourselves throughout this series, ask ourselves this week, because I think I speak for everyone here when I say, you wouldn't want this for yourself and you wouldn't want this for your kids to grow up and for money to be the thing that they place their trust in over their savior. I hope you join us next week for part three of Idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again for the many, many blessings that you've given us, Father. I think just a byproduct of this series is the acknowledgement that we are so, so blessed, Father, and you are so, so good to us, Lord. And and whenever we think about offering or mention finances, Lord, I think it's one of the first things that come to mind that for many of us, if we really just step, sit for a second and think about it, we have truly been so blessed, Father, Lord. But as we navigate through the, the difficulty and the kind of tenderness of this topic of giving, Lord, I ask that you move in ways that only you can, Father, Lord. This is such a deeply personal topic, Father, that I ask that in this moment, the Holy Spirit moves in a way that only you can, Father. Help us to view ourselves in all honesty in the way that you view us, Father. Help us to view our money and our relationship with the money the way you want us to. Lord, I speak for anyone in this room that maybe feels like that their relationship with money has been nothing more than just mindless obligation, Father. I know that your plan for us and your plan for giving is infinitely bigger than that, Father, and that you wish to use money as a tool not just to help others, but to help ourselves, Father, to give us the blessing and, and the, the the bump in faith that, that comes with trusting in you, Lord. If 
there's anyone in this room, Lord, that has let um, money become our idol, Father, I, I pray a prayer of repentance and confession, Lord. Help us to take the steps to come back to you. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.